We complete our short study of the letter of Paul to the Philippians today by reading the conclusion of the letter. It's only four chapters long, but we've made it through the first verse of chapter four and pick up our reading at the second verse. I'm really going to be concentrating with you today on verses two through nine, but I didn't want to just leave in the middle of the concluding chapter, so I'll read all the way to the end of the letter as well. Philippians chapter four, beginning at verse two. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable offering, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people 
here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I dreamed I had an interview with God. That was the opening line in a piece that I have seen several times over the years. And I'm going to ask you to dream that dream with me for a minute now and listen to the rest of it. I dreamed I had an interview with God. So you would like to interview me, God asked. If you have time, I said, God smiled, my time is eternity. What questions do you have in mind for me? What surprises you most about humankind? God answered <clears throat> that they get bored with childhood, that they rush to grow up and then long to be children again that they lose their health to make money and then lose their money to restore their health. That by thinking anxiously about the future, they forget the present, such that they live in neither the present nor the future. That they live as if they will never die and die as if they had never lived. God's hand took mine and we were silent for a while and then I asked, as a parent, what are some of life's lessons you want your children to learn? God replied with a smile, <clears throat> to learn that they cannot make anyone love them. What they can do is let themselves be loved. To learn that it is not good to compare themselves to others. To learn that a rich person is not the one who has the most, but is the one who needs the least. To learn that it only takes a few seconds to open profound wounds in persons we love, and it takes many years to heal them. To learn to forgive by practicing forgiveness. To learn that they are per there are persons who love them dearly, but simply do not know how to express or show their feelings, to learn that two people can look at the same thing and see it differently, to learn that it is not always enough that they be forgiven by others, but they must forgive themselves, and to learn that I am here always. Some years ago, the ARP newsletter carried an article about someone named Herbert Benson, a doctor, a cardiologist, with a Marcus Welby personality, a Cary Grant appearance, and a Harvard Medical School position. And the reason this article wrote about Herbert Benson is, quote, he believes human beings are wired for God that the very act of believing, no matter what our religion or philosophy, can help keep us well. Two things occurred in people when they said they were more spiritual, Dr. Benson claims. One was the feeling of the presence of power, a force, an energy, 
God, secondarily, that presence was close to them. Herbert Benson believes you can have that interview with God. It's apparently true that he also believes it really doesn't matter what God you interview. And that's where Paul and I part ways with Dr. Benson. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, and the God of peace will be with you. Apparently, the mind is the mission of the master. Come with me for one last time, at least for now, to Philippi. We conclude our study of this letter today, but a good deal of what I'm about to say comes from the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. Read that chapter sometime. It will give you some details in Paul's Philippian ministry and perhaps some insights into what I'm calling the Philippian profile. Philippi was an important place. Most of the cities Paul visited and chose to visit were important places. Not so he'd get big crowds and notoriety, but because the bigger and more significant the place, the better the possibility of the gospel spreading from there to all the surrounding areas. Philippi had been founded by Philip, whose father, who was the father of Alexander, you know, the one who later became the great. It remained one of the strategic spots in all of Europe, the land on which Philippi was built. It was built in a pass between the mountains that separated Asia and Europe, and many, many people had to travel through it. And as you know, if you heard the message last week, Philippi was a Roman colony, well-protected, well-policed, well-paved, well-peopled, and well-publicized as a place for the gospel to be proclaimed and from which the gospel could be proclaimed further, the place was ideal. A reading of Acts 16, as I suggested a moment ago, gives us a glimpse of at least part of the cast of characters, the persons in Philippi. There's Lydia, a businesswoman, and a young girl whose name is not given, who serves as a slave, and a very remarkable man who is the prison warden at the jail in Philippi. Lydia was an Asian and a seller of purple cloth. The young girl whose name isn't given was a Greek a native of the area, probably, and a fortune teller. Lydia was from Asia, at least what is now Turkey 
was then called Asia Minor. And the prison warden was probably a Roman citizen who was serving as a civil servant. And more than that, Lydia was a member of the upper class, a wealthy businesswoman to have international trade and to trade in something like purple fabric, which was a relative luxury. The young girl was a slave, as I said, and was engaged as a fortune teller. She was the lowest of the lowest class. And the prison warden, a Roman citizen, who was in Philippi to serve the government of Rome as prison warner, three, warden. Three nationalities, three different classes of people, and three radically different professions, showing that the gospel had made serious inroads in Philippi and was cutting across all of the levels of society. But Philippi, for all of its advantage, was also not problem-free. There was persecution for Christians in Philippi. Persecution is why Paul had to leave the place. And when he was gone, the persecution that focused on him was transferred to the believers who remained. In fact, one of the purposes of the Philippian letter was to encourage and build up the Christians who remained in Philippi and were suffering there. He wrote to them, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. In Philippi, there was also some disunity. Two people who had served with Paul in building up and establishing the church of Jesus Christ in Philippi, two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who Paul described as contending by my side in the gospel, were now contending face to face with each other and threatening the unity and the peace that allowed the gospel to spread in Philippi and beyond. And there were some false teachers in Philippi and Paul strongly urged the believers there, stay away from them. The church of Jesus Christ in a strategic place in the world, multicultural, multinational, friendly, generous, challenged for its faith, experiencing some disagreements and maybe even a few divisions, and doing its best to avoid false teaching, in every one of these aspects, in some way or other, it could have been this church, right here, right now. The Philippian profile is something like a look in the mirror. And to that church, whose profile was analogous to ours in a variety of ways, Paul also offers a proviso. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, 
whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. These were among his parting words to some of his dearest friends in the church at large. That makes them important for us to listen to. And what he's saying is that he wants to explain to us what to think and how to think about it. Finally, whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's noble, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, think about such things. William Barclay, the commentator, had this to say about Paul's proviso. The human mind will always set itself on something. And Paul wished to be quite sure that the Philippians would set their minds on the right things. This is something of the utmost importance because it is a law of life that if a person thinks of something often enough and long enough, he will come to the stage where he cannot stop thinking about it. His thoughts will be quite literally in a groove out of which he cannot jerk them. It is therefore of first importance that a person should set his thoughts upon the fine things. Finally, think about such things as these. Think about what is reliable. Maybe I could just say a moment that God's timing is always so amazing that we would be thinking about this paragraph in Paul's letter to the Philippians at this time in our lives, our history, our nation's dilemma. So I'd like you to be thinking about the crisis we are in, a crisis of so many kinds, not just health, but economic and social and crisis of thinking and relating and speaking and dealing and let God apply these words to us, starting with what is reliable, whatever is true. I don't know of anything that has suffered more in the last several years than truth. And with Pilate today, we ask the question, what is truth? To a growing number of people in our culture and our society, let alone the whole world, truth is what I think. The way I see it. The way it seems to me. The way I want things to be. Maybe even the way things have always been. But truth is not what I think, or what I see, or what I want. Nor is truth even factual accuracy, necessarily. Truth is closer to what's good, what's right, what's trustworthy, what is reliable. Instead of Simply thinking accurately about what is. Thinking about the truth is to think passionately 
about what ought to be. It is concentrating on what and who is reliable. Think about that. Think about what I'd call the reverential. Whatever is noble. Noble is not wealthy, highfaluting. Noble is a word the Greeks used to refer to their temples and to the gods they believed inhabited those temples. So whatever was noble was whatever was fit to bring into the presence of the gods. Whatever was noble was whatever invited reverence and was worthy of reverence and pointed the thinker toward God. Think about that. Think about whatever is responsible. The word Paul used is whatever's right. The Greeks defined the person who was right, the person who was just, as the person who gave to the gods, that's the way the Greeks would have said it, and to human beings what was due to them. Right thinking is not just accurate thinking, but it is thinking about what ought to be done, giving both God and human beings what they deserve. Think about that. Think about the respectable, or as Paul put it, the pure. Pure, for Greeks, was more than clean. It referred to a kind of a ritual bath, a cleansing that each worshiper underwent on the way into that building where they were going to sacrifice to their gods. So to be pure was to be fit, to come into the presence of the gods and to offer yourself to be of use to the gods. Now let me ask each one of us this morning, how many of your thoughts, your ideas, your preferences, your opinions, your judgments, your attitudes, how many of them are fit to bring into the presence of God? Keep your mind on the respectable, whatever is fit to offer to God. Keep your minds on the irresistible, which is how I describe what Paul called the lovely. Lovely means literally that which calls forth love from another, that which makes another want to love. One commentator said, there are those whose minds are so set on vengeance and punishment that they call forth bitterness and fear in others. There are those whose minds are so set on criticism and rebuke that they call forth resentment in others. The mind of the Christian 
is set on the lovely things. Kindness, sympathy, forbearance, love. So that the Christian is a winsome person whom to see is to love. Think thoughts that make love irresistible. And finally, Paul said, think about whatever is admirable. I would say whatever is reputable. The older versions had whatever is of good report. Once again, Paul has the Greek worshiper in mind and their vocabulary when he uses this word. The word that he uses here, the word admirable, is the word that refers to a particular time in the act of sacrifice in the Greek temple when everything was ready and the worshiper stopped for a moment of silence to let the gods listen. Things that are admirable are things that are fit for God to hear. And when you think that way, you begin to talk that way and act that way and relate that way in a way fitting for God to hear and to introduce God to those around you. Keep your mind on those things. But remember, Paul went on, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The six things I've just mentioned are things Paul urges us to think about. The reliable, the reverential, the responsible, the respectable, the irresistible, and the reputable. But the thing to do with these things is to think about them. Not just to roll them over in your mind all the time, but to cogitate, to muse, to reflect on them, to make them the environment in which your brain functions. William Henriksen put it this way, anything at all that is a matter of moral and spiritual excellence so that it is the proper object of praise is the right pasture for the Christian mind to graze in. So if anything is excellent, think about such things. This is the only time Paul ever used that word, excellent. But it was very familiar in Greek language and conversation. And it meant excellence of any kind. It could refer to the excellence of soil in a field that was particularly fertile. It could refer to a specific tool that was designed for a task and did that task excellently. It was a word that referred to an animal that had been trained to do a job and that did it excellently. It was a word that was used to describe the courage of a soldier who fought bravely in battle. It's as if Paul said to all of us, if the old pagan idea of excellence in which you were brought up has any influence over you, think of that. Think of your past life 
at its very highest, to spur you on to the new heights of the Christian way. And if anything is praiseworthy, well, think about that too. Paul is laying on us the obligation to be on the lookout for things that are worth praising. He has given us the responsibility, the real responsibility to praise. What a difference that will make in our attitude. And if in our attitude, then in our behavior. And if in our behavior, then in our relationships. If we are thinking of things to praise, to commend, to encourage, to bless. And if we make this the environment in which our mind functions, when these are the things you think, and thinking them, in the deepest sense of that word, is what you do with them, then Paul says, not just the peace of God, but the God of peace himself will be with you. Blaise Pascal, the philosopher mathematician had an experience with God one time that changed him for the rest of his life. He took a piece of paper and wrote down by hand what he had experienced and sewed it into the hem of his coat and wore it for the rest of his life. When he died nine years after this, they found it. And this is what it said. The year of our Lord, 1654, Monday, 23 November, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past 12 at night. Fire. God of Abraham. God of Isaac. God of Jacob. Not the God of philosophers and scholars. Certainty, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ. He is only found along the ways that are taught in the gospel. Tears of joy. I had parted from him. Let me never be separated from him. Surrender to Jesus Christ. And every time thereafter that Pascal found his faith faltering, he would simply take his hand and touch the spot. He wouldn't rip open the hem and pull out the paper. He just touched the spot where he knew it was folded up and had the experience all over again. Certainty, peace, joy. You can have that in an undependable world, in an unpredictable world, and in an often disappointing world. And this is how. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. God of peace, come again today with fire and light 
and trembling and whatever it takes to give us certainty and peace and joy in a shaky, undependable, disintegrating world. Give us the peace Pascal knew and that Paul offered. The peace that comes from the God of peace. The peace that is the presence of the God of peace himself with us, within us, and working through us. Help us to fix our minds on such things. Not only now, but always. For Christ's sake. Amen. Go now in peace, and may the God of peace himself give you peace at all times and in all places. The Lord be with you all. Amen.